Welcome to the Hearts Unleashed podcast, where we are turning dreamers into doers. You guys, I am so excited. I am already planning on this being a complete jam session. We have Thais Gibson. And after overcoming her own challenges with addiction in her early years, Thais is profoundly determined to educate people on how they can reprogram painful and limiting programs in their own mind. So you guys, those of you listening to the Hearts Unleashed podcast, you know that she is here to just share all of the knowledge, all the awareness that we often talk about here on the podcast. And I'm very excited for her unique perspective on this. She's really focused on helping people retrain their brain to achieve relationship fulfillment, abundance, and personal freedom in their lives. Thais is best known for her contributing work and research on the attachment theory, which I am so excited for her to teach us all about. It talks about the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships. She overlaps attachment trauma challenges with personal core wounds, limiting beliefs, and emotional patterns at the subconscious level to give us a deeper insight into ourselves and our relationships. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic, and her YouTube channel often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this area of their lives well. Welcome, Thais. I am so excited for you to teach us all about this concept. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you today. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into what you're up to. I guess like the long and short of the story is um, when I was about 14, I was playing D1 soccer in in university. And when I was 14, I had knee surgery and I got addicted to my painkillers right after that. And like, it was such a young age for me. I didn't even really know what addiction was. Like I was having my first experience of what it was like to go through withdrawals from something when I was like, I thought I had the flu. Like I didn't know what was happening and why I felt so crazy. And that really set me off on a journey because I struggled for the better part of like about seven years with almost daily use and like really, really kept going through this pattern of like, like self-loathing, like, cause I would go through every day and be like, okay, this is the last time. This is the last time. Mm-hmm. And then three hours later, I'm repeating the same thing. Or like a week later, I'm seeking out the same person who I get the painkillers from. And it's just, it was so tormenting for me. And it was just like, I was always losing this battle to myself. And so it created all this, these feelings of like weakness and helplessness. And then one day after trying so many friggin' different things that were not working, somebody said to me in passing in like a psychology class, I was taking, oh yeah, like the conscious mind can't outwill the subconscious mind. Mm. And it was like, oh my goodness, somebody just told me what the battle is inside of me. Mm. And it like put so many things into context and it set me on this really intense journey of like, not just learning from like the traditional perspectives of, of medicine and, and health and all these different things, but like really understanding the subconscious mind and a lot of things that aren't necessarily mainstream. So that took me back to school to a master's degree in trans personal psychology. And then I went on to do like 13 different certifications and all kinds of stuff. But a lot of it had to do with like hypnosis, NLP, like really understanding the dynamics of how the subconscious mind works, because that you you cannot create real change in a person's life unless you engage the subconscious mind in the process. And so that like created sobriety for me when I started to learn how to sort of hack my own mind and understand how to reprogram things. And it also made me realize that like, wow, a lot of the traumas I had went through, you know, because the problem isn't the problem with addiction. It's not the painkillers that are like jumping down your throat when you're sleeping. It's like you have trauma and you're hiding, you're running from something and it's stuff that is actually living with you at a subconscious level. And when I realized that a lot of our traumas actually have to do with our caregivers and our first relationships and the subconscious rules we live by because of how we attach to others, 
that was like, wow, most of the stuff that needs to be reprogrammed has to do with our early relationships and our early lives. And so that was like, you know, what put me into the whole attachment theory game. And then that sort of opened up. Um, I, I ended up running a practice and seeing like 40 clients a week for, for yeah. quite a time. And then that sort of was like, wow, this is a lot. And, um, and started doing, you know, large form workshops. And then that created the online school and, and that's sort of the, the space I'm in now. So beautiful, really like, ah, I'm so excited. <laughs> I want to say, first off, I, mean, I have to go backwards and tell you how, uh, how like exact our stories are. I played college basketball, tore my knee up, became addicted to painkillers. Like, no way. Yeah. And oh, so, <laughs> so like, I was just like, oh my God. Um, it's really exciting to, you know, meet someone who shares like such a closely related uh, story. And, and it, I, I'm so grateful because I, mine, my addiction probably lasted like m- the better half of a year, but it didn't continue, but I, I was just so scared. I was so scared of like going back to feeling pain and things like that. So I just really, um, really relate. And it's, it's fun to hear you share that. Um, that's so cool. you talk, I love that quote, the conscious mind cannot outwill the subconscious mind. Like heck yes. And if I know that's all the work that I do with my clients, so I just number one, acknowledge the work that you get to do in the world, because like, I, I could probably go way off into left field about this, but like, it's just not, we're not educated about that, right? Like you happenstance heard that and it clicked for you. But like, if what would be possible if we were taught that so much sooner. And so I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about like that early development, like if we were taught this sooner or what could be possible or, you know, how these things happen early in our life that we haven't been able to identify. Talk a little bit about that. 100%. So it's so interesting because we think that like our adult lives, we have all this conscious control and all these different things. But if you look at like your whole life, your conscious mind is roughly taking up like three to 5% of your thoughts and feelings and decisions and behaviors. And your subconscious is like 95 to 97%. And on top of that, your conscious mind processes about 40 to 60 bits per second of data Mm -hmm. and your subconscious up to a billion bits per second and sometimes even more for like finite periods of time. So like we think like, oh, our identity, our ego mind self is like running the show, but it's just not true. (laughs) And the first three years of our lives, we're the most suggestible. So we actually get most of our imprints in terms of like how we trust, how we feel around people, how we love, how we relate, how we connect, eye contact, our self-esteem, our self-worth, all of those really profound things literally are impacted most between the ages of zero to three. Yes. And then the next sort of like secondary chapters, three to eight. Mm-hmm. And then we go through our lives and we can be reprogrammed and certain experiences can definitely affect our programming, but they have to have a lot of emotion and they have to be really repetitive because it's repetition plus emotion that reprograms the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. So if we are going through our life and we see ourselves repeating the same patterns, attracting the same people in, in our relationships, in our lives, in our, as our, whatever it is, you know, what we don't realize is that a lot of that is because our subconscious mind is actually seeking out a comfort zone. And so we go into these interactions and we think like, oh, how could I possibly be interested in taking a job who, you know, I have the narcissistic boss who reminds me of all these other people or whatever, but your subconscious mind is making this massive framework upon your first meeting with somebody. And it's gathering all this information. And we're, we have a, a tiny, tiny fraction of that that makes it to our conscious mind from our subconscious. And so we go into the same 
same experiences and we seek out the same things because they're comfortable, but comfortable doesn't mean that they're not traumatic. Yeah. And so we have to get people to like become aware of their patterns, become aware of what were their greatest unmet needs in childhood, because often we're re-traumatizing ourselves. If you were emotionally neglected, chances are you're still neglecting your own emotions. Yeah. And we keep those, those traumas alive at a subconscious level. And we also have to recognize all the painful stories we collected, all the like, I'm unworthy of love. I'm not good enough. I, you know, boundaries are unsafe. Vulnerability is unsafe. All these things that we actually need to learn in our adult lives. We have to go back, find those imprints, source them and start reprogramming them. And that's how real change happens. Yes. I think, (laughs) I think I'm just going to like stop. I'm just going to stop recording new podcasts. I'm just going to republish yours for the rest (laughs) of ever. (laughs) This is great. Like I just, I'm so much love because you're speaking into what we're so confused about and like the way, like, why, why, why again? I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And like, I knew better. And yeah, if you don't know better, if you haven't been taught better, you can't look for that, right? Like our subconscious is constantly communicating with us and we have not been trained to listen to it. We've not been trained to observe our manifestations, the repeat patterns, right? And I love how you just said like trauma, we re-engage in that. We recreate that because it's so familiar. And we often will just like settle back into that because it's predictable. And I write in my first book and a lot of people will always, like it's something that people highlight is we would rather go with like our predictable misery than yeah. to delve into the unknown. hundred yeah. percent. And it's because your subconscious is like, it's, it's number one function is to keep you safe. Yes. So it's like, Oh, I was depressed. I was anxious. I was really sad. Life was really hard, but I survived. So this is working. And like, that's how your subconscious is choosing and making decisions a lot of the time. So it's like, of course we end up in those same patterns. And of course, you know, you said, I think a second ago, like, Oh, I knew better. Why, why, why? And it's like, yeah, like that was the essence of what I felt being an addict. And I'm sure you can relate like on a daily basis. Of course, you know, better than to be like putting painkillers up your nose. Like, of course, but your, your subconscious is like, but we're, we're avoiding pain. This is great. This, this has been working for us. This is, and so every single thing that our mind does is our conscious plus subconscious sees more benefits than drawbacks in the experience. Yes. And so every single thing it does, it's trying to get a need met. It's trying to keep you safe and it's trying to, it sees more benefits and drawbacks. So we have to change our relationship to how we perceive things. And that's part of the first season of reprogramming our first chapter of reprogramming itself. Yeah. Well, and so tell us a little bit, cause, um, as you were sharing, my mind went to like some of the later seasons of reprogramming, which is what, what this podcast is hearts unleashed, right? Like we're hardly ever in, in the world on a day-to-day basis, it's not like, what does it look like for you to like truly live your heart unleashed? Like we're always kind of like fixing, changing, surviving, manipulating, like overcoming the overcoming story for all of us is like the thing that runs our lives. And it's, I know when people are sharing some of those things, I, my heart, like, I don't want to sound like above it. Right. But my heart breaks a little when all I hear people's conversation is around is like fixing, changing, surviving. And instead of thriving or their creative expression or living their actual best life. And so tell us about those first couple seasons of reprogramming and change. 
Yeah. So I love this. And I just want to, you remind me of a quote before I answer this question. And it's one of my favorite quotes. It's by Byron Katie. And she says, clear mind, open heart. Yeah. And it's like, when we clean that stuff up, when we clear that stuff out, then we really get in touch with our heart center. Cause there's not all these layers of programming and conditioning and all these things that are blocking us and taking us away from our true selves. And then we can actually be in that thriving space. So, so in terms of like the first season, so the, the first big step I think for people is to, and I tell everybody do this exercise. Don't ever not do this exercise. It's one of the most important things you'll do in your life. Sit down and be like, what were the really big pain points from my childhood, especially like an early stage? Mm -hmm. And what did I make those things mean about me? Mm -hmm. And so those are going to be the stories about yourself. And there's actually core wounds people have. I've sort of narrowed it down to like 18 to 22 sort of core wounds. It's like, I am trapped. I am helpless. I am powerless. I am not good enough. I am disrespected. I am unloved. I will be abandoned. I will be alone. I am disliked. I don't belong. I am excluded. I won't go through like every single one, but like we have these core stories that we keep and all these stories form really the ego mind, but the ego mind is also basically our subconscious mind. And it's all the framework of how we see ourselves, we see and interact with the world through these stories of ourselves that we've made up and we're constantly reprojecting them. So if I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough. And then I'm going into a job interview for somebody tomorrow. My brain is like, oh, well, you're probably not going to be good enough or you're not smart enough or you're not. And we have all these things that come out of that. So we first have to identify like, what is our reality filter made up of? Mm-hmm. because that's the real pain. And I had somebody say to me one time in rehab, they were like, oh, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And I remember sitting there and being like, great. Alcoholism like ran rampant in my family. Yeah. And then on top of that, I had childhood traumas. So like genetics and environment, I'm screwed. Like you're telling me, I'm like, I think it was like 18 at the time. And I'm like, oh, you're telling me that I'm stuck like this forever. Oh, great. And, what I, <laughs> and what I realized is it's your perception of the environment that pulls the trigger. Yeah. And if we can change and reprogram our perception, we can change all the output that follows. Amen. And that's our first part is like isolating what our reality filter is made up of. What are the stories we tell ourselves? What are our fears, our limiting beliefs, all those things. And then and the other really big thing, and in the words of Dr. Gabor Mate, he says, trauma is the things that happened that shouldn't have happened. So like physical abuse or the things that didn't happen that should have happened. So like emotional neglect, like you should have been emotionally nourished. You should have been able to have boundaries in childhood. And so we have to identify you know, not just the stories and the painful things, but also the needs we didn't get met. And what were the biggest needs that I needed as a child in childhood that weren't met for me? Because what we'll see is that we keep not meeting them for ourselves. And that's how we're actually keeping these traumas alive. Why is trauma coming from 25, 30 years ago into my life now? Mm -hmm. Oh, because I've actually been repeating those traumatic things in the relationship to myself on autopilot without realizing. I'm still telling myself I'm not good enough when so-and-so was really critical. I'm still emotionally neglecting myself when my emotions were neglected. You know, and so we have to put in end to those cycles. And then all we have to really follow up and do is create a strategy to either change the behavior. So like if you're emotionally neglecting yourself, I don't know, a feelings journal is a great place to start or Vipassana meditations where you observe your feelings and emotions, you know, whatever it is. And then if we're telling ourselves a painful story, we have to change the story and our mind responds to evidence. And if, you know, if we go, 
If we go, okay, tell me why you're good enough. And you're like, well, cause I'm good enough. I'm good enough. I'm good enough. It doesn't do anything. Affirmations are not that effective. <laughs> if we go, I'm good enough because, and we give pieces of proof, the mind actually in memories and in pieces of evidence, it contains emotions and it's a repetition plus emotion that reprograms the subconscious mind. So if we say, oh, I'm good enough because I have this background or this award or whatever it is, things your mind can latch onto that it sees and feels about. If we can come up with 10 or 15 pieces of evidence every single day for 21 days, so we have repetition, we have emotion, mm. to change those original painful stories, we can reprogram the entire landscape of our subconscious mind, all those painful beliefs. And if we can have a daily strategy to change our behavior, so we stop emotionally neglecting, or we stop putting ourselves down, or we stop whatever it is to change those behaviors, we can also reprogram what the other end of trauma really is all about. The things that didn't happen that should have happened, we can change. Yes, really great. I love that. Like, thank you for an exercise. Thank you for the insight. And I love that quote you keep saying, uh, reality filter, right? We all have one and we're only perceiving this world through our own filter. And one thing that I wanted to kind of share, because I've seen this with clients and I love that exercise. And what people tend to bump up against is they can't recollect well, I don't know what happened to me. I don't know where it happened. And you're saying zero to three is that is such the formative time. And then three to eight, of course, that's a little bit more memorable. And we can tap into that a little bit more consciously. But I think that it's pretty normal for people that if they can't originally recall that we've compartmentalized so well, there are yeah. certain things that we've literally blacked out because we can't, haven't been able to cope. And so just to kind of like bring that, what do you know about that? And what can, what can a listener who's like really, invested in this idea and they'd love to take it on, what can they do if they really can't tap into those memories? Amazing, amazing question. So what I get people to do when they're stuck there is I get them to go through the seven areas of life. Mm. And it's sort of like reverse goal setting to find your limiting beliefs. So I get them to go through, so like your career, your finances, your mental, emotional, your spiritual, your physical, and your relationships, meaning like friends, family, romantic. Okay. And to go, okay, if I could have anything in any of the seven areas of life, what would I choose? Like, what would I want my life to look like and be designed like? And then I get them to ask themselves, why haven't I achieved this already? Mm. And they're, oh, because, you know, oh, I, I don't have enough time or I'm not good enough yet, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not, and whatever their yeah, buts are, yeah. those are their limiting beliefs and the stories of themselves. And that's actually going to help them find their limiting reality filter. Yeah. And so this is where you'll see them say, oh, you know, I, I, I'm not smart enough to be successful or, you know, I'm not good with people or I'm not liked or in my relationships, well, I'm going to be abandoned or I can't really identify all of those core stories. And then you can do the reprogramming work on those stories. And what I get people to do is like rate them. The things that come up for you, those core wounds, rate them from one to 10 and then start from the top down. So start with the biggest ones, the most painful ones. Sometimes people will have all these painful beliefs. Sometimes you'll see people come up with like 40 from that exercise. Yeah. And and then your job is to pick like the top ones and work backwards because it's sort of like, you know, if you imagine you have this whole neural network and then you slash right through the middle, it kind of affects everything else. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like the analogy, like if you knock a few legs out from under the table, the whole table falls. Mm -hmm. And it's the same sort of thing that I see when people are doing the reprogramming work. If they can change a few core beliefs, it spills out into everything else. Yes. 
Yes. I, I love the quote right there. What came up for me was like, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. Mm. And when yeah. people hear that there, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know, you start <laughs> just looking everywhere and it becomes so obvious too. Cause I remember it took me personally till 28 and I had been doing the, the work of transformation and coaching since 26, but it clicked for me. I'm like, I'm unlovable or like, I believe myself to be unlovable. And it was like this, like veil getting ripped off because I could see why I was the perfect angel and the athlete and the daughter and, you know, like achiever and perfectionist was like in order to, right. In order to be lovable and to win that, that validation. And I was like, ew, first off, just ew. Like you see, you see the impact and you see the effects of it and, and the inauthenticity of all of it. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's really, so talk to us about like what comes next. What's the next season when we identify all of this stuff? Yeah. Beautiful. So you kind of mentioned something in there, which is very similar. So one of the first things is like, I love that you said the inauthenticity because what I find too, or like sort of the way I tend to frame it is think of how you've been betraying yourself. Like think of how every time, like, and usually whatever the wound is, it's also our shadow. So usually if it's, oh, I will be abandoned. Usually you're really doing a great job at abandoning yourself up until this point. Or if you're like, oh, I'll be betrayed. Oh, you've probably been betraying yourself many times over. So we, we usually incidentally keep those things alive in the relationship to ourselves, which is part of our shadow to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And then what I get people to do is to look at the cost because the brain is deeply, deeply wired to avoid pain. And so when we look at the cost and you kind of said that in there, like the, what was the impact or you said something like that, I get people to sit with it. It's not the most fun thing to do, but it's like, okay, what has telling the story over and over again on autopilot or reprojecting it over and over again about how you're going to be abandoned or how you're not going to be good enough or how you'll be betrayed. What have those things been costing you? And to really take a good hard look. And usually there's a big sort of emotional shift in somebody, but then usually they want to go home and friggin' start that reprogramming tonight. Like they get really, really motivated. And then it becomes like, can you show up for yourself? And we change our programming through our beliefs through our thinking and through our actions. Mm -hmm. So if we're doing work and we're going, you know, I will not be abandoned, you know, and you you don't want to speak in knots because the subconscious doesn't read negative language. You want to be like, I'll be connected. I'll be together. I'll be, you know, and have like a positive framing. Mm. You you start there. But then what we have to be really cognizant about is that if we're doing that belief and thought reprogramming by changing our story Mm -hmm. and finding those pieces of evidence, we have to make sure where our, our actions are in line too. So if we're saying, you know, I'm going to be connected, I'm together, I have closeness, I have love, but then we're abandoning ourselves over and over again, we're still <laughs> canceling it out. So we have to make sure our actions and behaviors line up as well. And not abandoning ourselves can be setting bigger boundaries, you know, showing up for our boundaries repeatedly, sharing our feelings, being more vulnerable. Like it can be so many different things, but we have to tune in. We have to be like my beliefs, my thoughts, and my actions all have to line up and I have to be thinking, acting, and feeling a new way to create a new story. And over time, that becomes who we are. Mm. And we change our identity in a beautiful way because usually a lot of our identity as it is before we start this work aren't the things we consciously chose for ourselves. They're the things that happened because of trauma and pain and these funny coping mechanisms we developed. And we don't have to live with those things. And we can choose who we want to become. And that's part of this work for sure as well. 
Yes, there's so much in there. I was note-taking like a crazy gal, but you know, I really wanted to say what's so wonderful about what you're sharing and the way that we can actually take this work on is um, I wanted to share some of the steps that I heard you talking about because like what you were sharing was at such a level of like self-mastery, right? And and just to and continuously encourage listeners, if you guys are taking this work on, like you literally, the first job is to start to study, study yourself, study, study, understand, understand, see. And then beyond that is accept. And then you were talking back about impact and the cost, right? Like we have to come to forgive ourselves for a lifetime of being a certain way or acting unconsciously or subconsciously. But I love that you were leading us into that self-mastery kind of action. But you even you shared a few answers ago or in the conversation about 21 days, 21 days of reaffirmation of continuous that because it's a muscle, and just because we can see it does not change it, right? And then you were talking thoughts, feelings, words, actions is the equation for integrity, right? Your thoughts, feelings, and actions are in alignment. And so we can easily check in with ourselves. Am I in integrity? Am, is this out of integrity? Is this thought out of integrity? Is this action out of integrity with who I want to become and how I want to be? And just like, thank you for that because it's so subtle. And I'm really enjoying this conversation because it sounds like getting to be in this conversation, like we've both been doing this work. And I love speaking into the hearts of people who are so willing yet so how on earth do I do this, right? So do you have any words of like hope or you want to shine a little light at the end of the tunnel for our people who are so committed? Absolutely. And I, I want to say something really quick that you said that I think is like extremely important. And people like sometimes when I leave a podcast or something, people are like, oh, what's your one thing that you want to share? And it's like, it sounds so cliche sometimes, but it's probably one of the most important things we can do for our healing you have to be gentle to yourself in the process. Like yeah. you have to be compassionate to yourself. Part of why we stay in trauma is because we learn to not see ourselves as a human being. We learn to see ourselves like, oh, I should be this robot that never makes mistakes and that is liked by everybody and is perfect. And that is traumatic. We became our like really painful caregivers to ourselves the moment we do that. Mm-hmm. And further beyond that, we also stop ourselves from inquiring and understanding. The moment we get into self-judgment, like, oh, why did I do that? What's wrong with me? Mm. That's when we stop ourselves from going, oh, what led up to that? What created the context for me to raise my voice? Or what created the context for me to forget that thing that was really important, you know, and to actually correct the root of the problem. Mm. And so, you know, I, part of my experience, I'm not sure if you ever went through anything like this, but I got off of painkillers. I still was like really struggling with alcohol. I was working and I was back in school and I was like, you know, doing life again, but I would go to, I lived in the U.S. at the time and I would go to this gas station across the street every time I got home from work and I'd open this bottle of wine and I'd have school in the morning and work in the evening and I couldn't not drink the whole bottle of wine. Mm. And I wanted to be able to feel like I can just drink a glass of wine because it's like a Monday evening and I'm by myself and like, why? But I was, you know, like 22 at the time or something. And, And so I would open this bottle of wine, couldn't not drink the whole bottle. And then I would get into to like, you're going to go backwards. You're going to start doing painkillers again. What's wrong with you? And then sure enough, then I'm back at the gas station again with my second Mm -hmm. bottle of wine. And I had this realization at some point that like the more I was mean to myself about it and the more I was like fear mongering myself in my internal dialogue, Mm -hmm. the more I needed to drink because I needed to escape from the pain I was creating in the relationship to myself. And the moment I changed and I was like, 
okay, you know what? You've come so far. You're doing such a good job. Like this is so much better. Think of how you used to live from morning till night. I'm proud of myself. I know I can do this. This is the last leg of the race. Like I'm getting this together. And then I would stop drinking and then I would feel hope and inspiration. And so my internal dialogue and changing, like humanizing myself and treating myself with kindness and compassion and uplifting was actually like the last thing that really cemented and being able to be sober and have a healthy relationship to life. And so I just, I can't stress that enough in anybody's healing journey. I am so grateful that you did stress that so much because in my upcoming book, Alchemizing Judgment, I literally took the time to spend like a whole chapter on language, self-talk, right? Because yeah, oh my God. Uh, uh, one of my, one a coach really made a shift for me when he was like, if, you're talking about being gentle to yourself, right? He's like, if you were attacked in an alley or if you came across somebody who was attacked in an alley, would you then yell at them for getting attacked? If you did that, would you yell at yourself for getting attacked, right? Like, don't do that anymore. And I saw how I was absolutely berating myself. And yes, same, even past painkillers, like I still struggled with alcohol, marijuana. And like, I always would try to justify it as like, oh, this is how I manage my anxiety. Or, you know, I like would find reasons that it was okay. And yet there was also a part of me that knew I wasn't, you know, helping myself for sure. But it definitely would it would help with the internal dialogue for a while, right? <laughs> so it would lighten up or whatever. And especially as as we go from, you know, college into adulthood and it didn't necessarily get any better and I didn't learn how to manage it until I shifted into this work. But I think what I want to say about it is like, it's been so normalized. There's a lot more people talking shit and talking shit to themselves yeah. than people encouraging healing and 100%. And I think part of why this happens too is like your mind is designed at a subconscious level to hang on to negative more than positive. Yeah. Because it wants to protect you. It wants to remember all the bad things so you can know for next time. Yeah. So then as a byproduct of that, like all the negative stuff that your teacher said, your caregiver said, your mom, your dad, your siblings, uh, yes. we internalize that the most. And like, if you pay close attention, most of our internal dialogue before we start doing this work is literally just mom and dad and it's siblings at the worst moments of our lives. Yes, thank and you. we're not to ourselves. Yes. And then you know what happens? Then we really stay in resentment to mom or dad because yes. we're not aware that actually at a deeper level, we're resenting because that trauma is still alive. And when we do the work, to let go of that stuff within us, we don't stand resentment any longer to the people who imprinted us in the first place because it's no longer impacting us. Yes, yes, yes. Like, ah, I just <laughs> heal everybody. Heal, 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 heal. Everything you can heal, just heal it. And and so tell us a little bit, because I wonder, I'm so curious about the attachment theory. Yeah. What does, the, tell us a little bit about that and how it has to do with all of this. Yeah. So when I was doing all this like work and I was trying to get to the root of all these things and learning about the subconscious, I was like, okay, well, what impacts us most in the first three years of our lives? Well, it's our caregivers. And that's when we get all of our earliest perception. So I came across attachment theory, which is like John Bowlby's work from, I think like 1970s or 1980s. And he started working with somebody named Mary Ainsworth, who sort of built upon his work later on. And basically it's this idea. We all have different like ways that we learn to attach to our caregivers. 
surrogate first. So we have four main attachment styles. And what I like to compare this to is like, you get these subconscious rules for relating to others. And it's sort of like, if you have a different attachment style, it's like you're sitting down playing a board game with somebody and they have a different rule book than you for how the board game works. Like oh. obviously you're going to have like stress and unnecessary friction and all these different things. So we have four main attachment styles and I'll go into them and say the sort of core parts. But what I realized, cause I was seeing so many people in my practice for so long is that it's not just our attachment styles. Our attachment styles actually also come with like specific core wounds, individual to each attachment style, specific needs we have in relationships. Like one attachment style needs safety and consistency. One needs passion and excitement. Like they can be so different. And then we also have um, expectations we place onto others that are related to attachment style, core emotional patterns we feel and ways through which we give and receive love. So out of this, I created something called integrated attachment theory, which is sort of like the spring off of like John Bowlby's original work and attachment styles, but then like how they really impact our adult romantic relationships and friendships and family relationships. So we have four main attachment styles. One is secure and three are insecure. So our secure attachment style, this child basically learns in their early life that when they cry or express needs, that they get tended to. So as a byproduct of that, and and as a byproduct of having like eye contact as a child and being catered to and having emotional presence and stability in the household, a child learns like I am worthy of love. I can trust vulnerability is good. When I express emotion, my needs are met. So it's good to express feelings and to share. Mm -hmm. And I can express needs and express boundaries. And this is healthy stuff. And so they learn to go into their relationships, treating others in that same way. And they generally have secure and lasting relationships. And these are the people who feel good in their relationships. They're happy with their partners long-term, all that kind of stuff. And they also feel very worthy because if I think my feelings and needs are worthy at a young age, then I carry that through my life. And it's easy to connect with people. And I feel more confident. And I feel inherently not flawed. And then we have our three insecure attachment styles, which are very, very common. And on one end of the continuum, you have your dismissive avoidant. And so the dismissive avoidant person is usually somebody who at some point in life had some kind of emotional neglect. And it can also be physical neglect, but a lot of the time it's actually like fly under the radar emotional neglect where the parents are sweet and they meet all the needs and they take care of like your, you know, cooking and cleaning and that kind of stuff. But there's not emotional availability. When you express emotions, there's not like, oh my gosh, tell me about that. How are you? What's going on? Or is it if a child's crying at a young age, there isn't like presence. It's like, oh, stop crying. So, and, and there's a, an inherent emotional repression that happens. And so what this child learns is vulnerability doesn't feel good because it doesn't get my needs met. If I express, it's usually rejected. So there's no point. And there must be something wrong with me at my core as a person because a child's mind can't go, oh, my caregivers are emotionally unavailable. They go, I have these needs. They're getting rejected, so it must be me. And so this individual grows up and in their adult lives, usually fear commitment. Mm -hmm. Usually when vulnerability is required in sort of later stages of relationships, they're like, no, and they push away. Mm -hmm. They usually are highly independent. They're really good at self-soothing, but they do not soothe through others. They're slow to open up to people and they usually carry big shame wounds. So at their core, they tend to feel defective. They tend to feel shame very easily. They're very sensitive to criticism and they really care about like safety in their lives. Like sometimes hoard their resources, sometimes seem selfish to other people externally, but it's because they're kind of in like fight or flight. I need to stay safe. Mm -hmm. And so that's one end of the continuum. 
And then basically on your opposing end, you have the anxious attachment style individual. And this person's the person in their adult lives who comes across as like the cliche, like needy or clingy or calls seven times in a row or, you know, is afraid of being alone and always wants the closeness. But that's rooted in trauma too. And that person usually in their childhood had some kind of inconsistency. So either mom was really warm and dad was cold and the juxtaposition felt like emotional abandonment or maybe both caregivers were really loving, but they worked a lot. And so this child didn't learn to self-soothe properly. They learned to soothe through others, but then to panic when others were pulled away. Mm -hmm. And so usually they have really big core wounds around abandonment, really big core wounds around being alone, excluded, disliked, like not belonging, things related to other people. And they really need a lot of closeness in relationships to feel safe and secure. And as life would have it, usually the anxious and dismissives attract each other in relationships. So they trigger oh. each other like crazy, <laughs> right? Like yeah. one's like, I need closeness and one's like, I need space. And then it just yeah. becomes cyclical. But if we pay close attention, they attract each other because they're the shadow selves of each other, right? So the anxious is in a dismissive relationship to self dismissing their own feelings and needs. So they're attracted to somebody who treats them the same way. And the dismissives in an anxious relationship to themselves, always needing like that space and worrying about their own time. So they attract somebody who's treating them the same way, right? And then right in the middle, you have your fearful avoidant, which is like technically supposed to be the most challenging attachment style to be. Um, And the fearful avoidant experiences both sides of the attachment spectrum. So they experience the anxiousness, the like, I feel abandoned and alone and I need closeness and, and exclusion wounds and things like that. And they also experience, oh, you're getting too close now. I feel trapped and powerless and I need to get away and I don't want to be vulnerable. And so it's sort of like this, come here, come here. And then you get close and it's like, no, no, go away, go away. And so this person's always swinging from like hot to cold. And they often, you know, give a lot of mixed messages to other people without meaning to, because they're mixed up in terms of what do I want? Like, do I want the closeness or do I want that space? And usually it's because in childhood, they had some big trauma wounds, some big distrust, some big, you know, so, so they usually have some positive emotional associations to closeness. So they hunger for it, but they fear it at the same time. And this can be because a parent was struggling with addiction. So mom's loving, but then she's an alcoholic and sometimes she's, you know, or dad's, you know, whatever it might be. It can be lots of fighting in the home, lots of chaos or violence or a big messy divorce, or basically something where we like closeness, we, we fiend it and we want it so badly, but it's painful at the same time. And so we get these like really conflicting messages and um, most insecure attachment styles are with each other in a relationship in some form and most secure people end up in a relationship in some form. So it can make the world of dating and love for insecurely attached people really crazy and chaotic and confusing until we understand our rules, other people's rules, can do the work on our core wounds, can do the work on expressing our needs and learning that it does matter to have boundaries and show up for them and communicate them and learn how to communicate in a safe and healthy way. Amen, sister. And I'm just, I'm I love what you shared and I'm kind of like laughing on the inside because I can imagine like a listener like spinning in what you said, like what, where, how, who? And I do have a question, but I just want to say and like encourage anyone listening is like how important your own work is, right? Like I loved what you shared in the way that you shared it in the dynamic of relationship, because I think that way too often we expect a significant other. Maybe that looks like friendship, right? Maybe that looks like our, to our parents or whatever, but we are far too reliant on others 
to satisfy those needs, to meet those needs, to understand us more than we understand ourselves. And so like introspection first, self-work first, healing first, like all the time. And, and the hope or like the um, ideal that if you were to take on this work for yourself, relationships wouldn't sound like what you were sharing. Like there's that tug of war and that misunderstanding in the <laughs> So, and then the other side of this, like, number one, we thank you for the perspective of how we got fucked up. <laughs> but also like, I can imagine so many of our parents listeners how do we not do this to our little babes how do we not screw them up I love that question so so it's so beautiful because one of the biggest things that we can give to our kids is their own happiness and so really like when we look at and it's really touching on exactly the point you just made is like you want to have the healthiest most thriving relationship be at peace with yourself. Like if you're at peace with yourself, you will notice if you pay close attention and I, you for sure probably know this, but listeners listening, like whatever, if you're being emotionally neglectful to yourself, guaranteed, like by the end of the day, you're going to be like, God, my partner's so neglecting. And we (laughs) project all of our stuff constantly all the time. And so not only do we need to be at peace within ourselves for like our romantic relationships or friendships or family relationships, because we will project onto them that they're treating us the way we're actually treating ourselves. But we also really, really need to get clear about if I'm happy, if I'm regulated, I can have room in my psyche to see and hear somebody differently. Instead of projecting how my child should be, how they should be behaving, why they're triggering me. No, no, no. I can try to have room to understand and have compassion and see and hear this child's unique needs, unique values, unique interests, and not project how they should be onto them when I'm at peace, when I'm regulated. If I'm not, I'm going to take all my insecurities, project them onto my child and try to parent my child in a way that gets them to fit into a box that I've created to fulfill my own needs. And this is what happens when we're unconscious. Mm. And so it's so important as a parent that you're in a good space, Mm. that you tend to your child's emotions when they express them. Mm. You can say like, hey, you know, if let's say the child does an inappropriate behavior, like throws something or whatever it might be, you can say, listen, that behavior is not okay. And that's absolutely unacceptable. But I can see that you're upset. I can see you're frustrated. Tell me about it. Tell me why. So we can still validate somebody else's emotions without validating their behavior or teaching that the behavior is appropriate. And the act of doing Doing that is extremely important because our emotions are an integral part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so if we learn that our emotions are okay and they're worthy of being seen and heard and understood, not only do we learn to regulate our emotions better and make space for them, but we also learn that we're worthy at our core. Mm-hmm. And so tending to that is extremely important. Getting a child to express their needs and to put their needs into words, like what do you need to feel better right now? What would make you feel better? Getting them to build in that relationship is extremely important as well. Mm-hmm. And then again, really being able to see somebody, even if they're different from ourselves. And often a child will, in some cases, I would say the the vast majority of cases I've seen, um, a child is a parent's shadow. So often they're going to have like a lot of the traits that the parent hasn't accepted within themselves. A lot of that, just because of the byproduct of how the conditioning system works, can take place. And it can be like a little bit of both of the parents. So what that's there to teach us to a certain degree as well is like, hey, like I have to love and accept these qualities, even though they, I might not understand them. I have to love and accept these behaviors and I have to hold space and still condition my child in a way to be socialized into the world. But it's really, I think a lot of the parent-child relationship is there to teach unconditional love. 
So well said. And even the way that you said like parent to child, I think even adults need to learn. It's okay to express your needs. It's okay. To- oh, <laughs> right? Like I was hearing it so loud and clear. And, and then you followed it right up with like, they are a direct reflection of us. Like, and I say that in relationship too, is like, they come to show you they are everyone you're interacting with is a mirror for you to get to see a hidden part of you. Right. So like, look, just look. And you know, that kind of goes back to something you said earlier was like, we genuinely, we stop being curious. Yes. We slip into judgment, we slip into assumption and rejection and, and ridicule instead of just like, why? Why am I triggered right now? Why am I seeing this? How did I manifest this? And what is it teaching me and showing me? So like, just thanks. Thank you so much. And as we start to wrap up this, because like, I think if I didn't have nine more calls today, I would talk to you forever. <laughs> but it's just so nice to have you share. And I love the way that you've articulated what you shared today. So thank you so much for giving us another lens to look through on the subconscious work, attachment, wounding, limiting beliefs. Like this is what we are all about here. And so um, I'd love to wrap up with one of my favorite questions. What does it look like for Thais's heart? to be unleashed? Oh my goodness. I think it's to really, really be A, in relationship to self, which I think sort of my upbringing as a person was like, you know, caretake for everybody around. And so I noticed like I am the most thriving and whole when I'm in relationship to self first. And I think that's really important for so many people, especially people who are very empathetic to be able to stay grounded. Um, and then to be able from that space to show up in a really loving way and hold space for others. And the more we are compassionate to ourselves and loving towards ourselves, the more we hold space for other people as a result. And I think that, you know, like the words of Byron Katie, like clear mind, open heart, when we clean out our stuff, when we're kind to ourselves, then we really come from that hard space. And it's almost hard to shake that and be pulled away from that. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. And how beautiful. What an inspiration, really. Because it's like, okay, I think maybe I could take that on. It's loving the self, prioritizing the self. And we definitely talk about that here on the Hearts Unleashed podcast. So thank you for sharing your Unleashed Heart and contributing to those who are also very committed to unleashing their heart. I think that you paved a beautiful path today for them to get to follow and exercises to try. Thank you so much. And this was like the most fun I've had on a podcast in so long. This is amazing. (laughs) And um, also too, something that I was thinking was like, everyone needs to hear more about what you're talking about and maybe try one of your courses. Where can they connect and follow? And and, and, so I have a free, I have a YouTube channel with like tons of free content. I put YouTube channel content every single day. Um, So it's personal development school dash Thais Gibson. And then we have personaldevelopmentschool.com and that's our school. So we have like 35, plus courses. We put two new courses out every month. I do four live webinar calls a week with people. So lots of like time and, and um, connection in there. And we have a really beautiful community. So mm-hmm. those are the spaces. Oh, great. So personaldevelopmentschool.com. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. You guys make sure you go visit webinars, courses, free content, sign up content, work with you, all the different things. Like you have every resource you need to live your heart unleashed, to heal, to be a contribution on this planet, to raise beautiful babies, to be expressed yourself, to shine your light. Because, you know, that's one thing I want to acknowledge you for, Thais, is like, you're just so radiant, right? Like, and I know it's a result of the work of healing and figuring yourself out and self-mastery because now you get to turn around and teach and share this. And I know that we have hearts who listen to this content and, and that they have something on their heart to share. They have a mission and a purpose. And so just thank you again for being a shining example of that. 
Thank you so much. Yes. Love being here. Awesome. And thank you, Hearts. Thank you for tuning in, for opening up your heart, for sticking with us. This was a, a great long episode, and I hope you got exactly what you needed today to be living your heart unleashed. So thank you for tuning in to the Hearts Unleashed podcast, where we are turning dreamers into doers. Thanks for tuning in to the Hearts Unleashed podcast. We hope you found all the inspiration that you needed today and that you use it to take the next inspired action on your dreams. If you loved the show, share it with a friend. We love spreading the love. For more information, to listen to more episodes, or to shop Hearts Unleashed, head over to heartsunleashed.com. See you next time, Hearts.